Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week, we are in a series called Fear Less. The phrase, don't be afraid, appears in the Bible more than any other biblical command, and for good reason. People of all generations have struggled to trust God when facing difficult or scary situations. Join us for Fear Less and learn from the biblical stories that can help us face our fears with faith. Back in everyone's favorite year, 2020, uh, Delaney found out that she was pregnant with our second child, and we could not have been more excited. And the weeks went by, and we went to Delaney's first ultrasound appointment uh, up at the WVU Family Medicine Center at the University Town Center, and everything was normal and fun and good until the ultrasound tech kind of abruptly stopped, and then she said that she needed to go talk to her supervisor. So she goes and talks to her supervisor, and that was really strange to us because that didn't happen at all in Delaney's first pregnancy. And so we immediately were worried. Uh, But after speaking with her supervisor, the tech came back and told us that we needed to go to the maternal fetal medicine department at WVU, which if you don't know, that's the department that handles all the high-risk pregnancies. And what we learned that day was that the baby had what's called a cystic hygroma. And a cystic hygroma, it's essentially a cyst on the baby's neck, and it's an indicator for a lot of really negative outcomes with the pregnancy. And so there was an extremely high likelihood that the baby would not make it to term. And even if the baby did make it after birth, there's a good chance that she would not have lived uh, for a long time. And even if she was able to live after birth, she would have had a lot of medical conditions and really difficult things in her path forward. We were distraught. I mean, I remember sharing all that as a prayer request in our next staff meeting after we learned it, and it was still on Zoom because it was 2020, and I just broke down in tears. I mean, we were anxious. We didn't know what was going on. We had so much uncertainty. We were afraid. We felt out of control. And personally for me, that out of control, sense of being out of control, led me to being insecure because I felt like I couldn't protect my family, which I felt like I was supposed to do. We had never faced more uncertainty in our lives up until that point. And then one Friday night... Heading toward the end of the pregnancy, we wound up going to the emergency room because of some kind of symptoms that Delaney was having that was concerning. And when we got there, they kind of made sure Delaney was okay. And as they made sure that she was okay, then they decided to check on the baby with an ultrasound. And just as it was every other time before, the cyst was still there. But Monday, three days later, Delaney had a regular appointment. So we went to this regular appointment, and when you have a high-risk pregnancy, they do a lot more testing kind of regularly throughout to check on the baby to see where things are. And, and they do the ultrasound on Monday, but the cyst was gone. Nowhere to be found. It just vanished. And the doctors mentioned that these cysts resolve. They do resolve sometimes, uh, but they resolve over time. We had just seen it days earlier, and the doctor said it couldn't have resolved within a matter of 72 hours. And so seemingly, miraculously, a couple weeks later, Aria Kelly Archer was born. We've got a picture from a few days after she was born. Yes, we were so excited. That's probably... Day four, I think, uh, we were still in the hospital. They had to run extra tests to make sure she was okay, particularly that her heart was good, and she passed with flying colors. If you haven't met her yet, here's a picture of her from about a month ago. Uh, That was at her sister's Barbie birthday party, and uh, she is two and a half and about as every bit of two that you can be. She is sour. She is sweet. She's incredibly precious, and we're incredibly thankful that that situation worked out the way that it did. 
Unfortunately, not every situation works out how we want it to, right? We all have situations in which we face uncertainty. We have situations where we feel out of control, where anxiety creeps in behind us, where fear closes in all around us. And I'm sure that if we had time today to go around and share, each one of us could share a story where we felt that much dread, that much unease, where something was going on that brought this kind of fear. Or maybe you're going through a situation like that right now. Maybe it's your family, or maybe it's your health, or or maybe it's your job. And in these moments, what people typically need right away is they need someone to just step in and just kind of be with you in the thick of it, right? Whatever's going on, you don't really need advice right in the beginning of those moments. That being said, something that's still true, even though that's kind of not the thing we need in that moment, is that I think one of the reasons that we can become overwhelmed with fear in these moments is because we don't stand firmly on God's promises, and we don't stand firmly on God's promises, we can become overwhelmed with fear. And this morning, we're continuing our new series, Fear Less. And Pastor Tim kicked off two weeks ago, and in his first talk, he shared about how Jesus and how that he was a man of prayer, and that prayer helped him face difficult situations. Now today, we're gonna look at a prominent figure in the book of Judges, uh, and and a figure who really struggled with fear, and really struggled with standing firmly on God's promises. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, uh, it's named after the type of leader that God used to save Israel in this period of history. And when I think of judge, right, I think like black robes, gavel, that whole thing, but these judges were different. They were much more than that. These judges were more like regional, governing, military, general type people in this situation, uh, more than people who sat in courtrooms all day long. And throughout this whole period, there were over 12 judges or 12 judges that Israel raised up over a period of about four to 450 years. And to give some context, right, Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. And then God raises a Moses and we read in Exodus, the story of God bringing them out of Egypt. And then once he brings them out of Egypt, he promises that he's going to give them a land, right? We call it the promised land. And so they're working their way to getting to the promised land and says, I'm going to give it to the next generation. And then Moses dies and the new guy Joshua is raised up as a leader. And we have the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we see kind of Israel trying to follow God and trying to drive out the people in that land and take it over for themselves as God had given it to them. And at the end of Joshua, they're doing a pretty good job at that. And like they go from enslaved to wandering the desert to victory and they're winning these battles and they're starting to enjoy how good the promised land that God has given them. But then we get to judges and, and everything takes a turn for the worst. It's filled with chaos and debauchery and idolatry. So what happened between the end of Joshua and and kind of the end of Judges judges that made all of this go? And simply put, in taking this land, when God gave it to them, he said, not only are you going to take it, but you need to drive out the Canaanites completely. And the Canaanites were the pagan people who inhabited that land. And so we're going to see this be kind of explained in Judges chapter 2. So let's turn there, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I brought you out of Egypt and I led you into the land I'd promised to your ancestors. But I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You're to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. So what have you done? 
And so some scholars, uh, and I tend to agree with them, think that this is what is known as a theophany, meaning that it was not merely an angel that came down to speak to Israel, but it was actually Jesus that came down and spoke to Israel. And so the word angel can trip you up, but it, it just simply means sent one. And so sometimes God would send angels to bring a message to the people, but sometimes God chose to come down in the person of Christ to visit them as well. And so I believe that is one of those situations. And now for, as for what he's sharing with them, he's reminding the people that they failed to do what God told them to do, to completely drive out the Canaanites. And as you read that, you might think, why? Like, why would God tell them to do that? Why did God want them to do this? And I think that's a really great question if you're thinking that. But I think what the answer is is that God wanted them to drive out the Canaanites because of who the Canaanites were. Because God didn't want the Canaanites to influence Israel. The Canaanites were incredibly idolatrous. He didn't want them to be tainted by that. He didn't want them to be tainted by their uh, horrendous moral practices. I mean, these were people who worshiped uh, kind of a bunch of different gods. They were as morally deviant of a people group as they come. And one of the things that they would do to appease their gods was to sacrifice children. And so this was not a good group of people. And God knew, hey, if, if you don't drive them out completely, they're going to influence you and they're going to pull you away from me in other words, pull you away from life itself. And so they don't do that. They don't drive out the Canaanites. That's the answer to that question earlier. Why have things gone wrong? And then Jesus goes on to share what the consequence for failing to obey God is starting in verse three. He says, therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bacham and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. A question I had when I was reading that is why, why is God punishing them for not driving out the Canaanites? I mean, if it's going to be so bad to like just be around them and exist with them, wouldn't punishing them with something else just kind of be kicking them while they're down? And as I kind of thought about it, I feel like there's a couple answers to this question. And the first one is that God's punishment is that he will not aid them in driving the people out. In other words, God's not heaping anything else onto them. He is just allowing the consequences, allowing them to face the consequences of their actions. And you might even ask, why, will, why would he do that? Well, so that they'll realize they've messed up and that they need to turn back to God. Warren Wearsby notes that God speaks to his children either through the loving voice of scripture or the heavy hand of chastening. If we ignore the first, we must endure the second. One way or another, the Lord is gonna get our attention and deal with us. See, had they listened to God in the first place, they wouldn't be in this predicament. However, they refuse to listen to God, and so God is kind of getting their attention through the only means possible, the only way in which they will listen. And this leads to a downward spiral that Israel goes on as they're heavily influenced by the people around them. Now, in the end of chapter 2, after what we just read, the author of Judges gives an overview of the rest of the book, of the rest of this period of history. And in the overview is a cycle, you'll notice. And we're going to look at what that cycle means. It's a cycle that they seem to be stuck in throughout the entire period of Judges. And so what would happen is Israel would be in the land, and then they would turn away. 
They would turn away from God. They'd be swayed by the people living among them. And then once they would turn away, God would allow them to experience oppression. And the reason he did that, remember, is so that he could get through to them and so that they would listen to him again. And then after the oppression, every time, they would turn back to God. They would realize their mistakes, realize they're wrong, and turn back to him. And then, being moved with compassion, God would rescue them at the hands of a judge. And like, just think about that for a minute. I mean, God had every right to abandon Israel as Israel had abandoned him over and over and over again. Think about the patience that God displays over this 400, 450 year period to continually give grace and chance after chance to this people. Like the God of the Old Testament is not usually thought of as a patient and loving, compassionate God, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they would turn back to God, he would rescue them, and then Israel would experience a time of peace because of that judge, as long as that judge was living. And so during their judge's life, peace, everything would be good. As soon as that judge dies, everything would go crazy again. It would be chaotic and terrible. They would turn away from God and they would repeat this cycle over and over again. And so not only during this entire period, Israel does not move forward, but they actually spiral downward until Israel at the end of the book looks nothing like Israel at the beginning. They no longer are serving God really in any way. It's kind of remarkable. So now the stage is set. And now we're going to look and turn our attention to Gideon. He was the fifth judge in this period. And we see in chapter five that God saves Israel through the judge Deborah. And then they experience a 40-year peace. And then Deborah dies. And that's where this, we see this cycle begin again. We're going to pick up in uh, chapter six, verse one. It says, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So after these 40 years of peace... As soon as Deborah dies, they're right back at it again. They're turning away from God, and their actions are showing it. They're doing what is evil in God's sight. And so what do we expect to see next? Well, let's continue, beginning with the rest of verse 1. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops... The Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They, they and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became a poverty stricken became poverty stricken because of Midian. So because Israel is turned away from God, he allowed the Midianites to oppress them. And notice how the author describes the level of oppression. I mean things are so bad that these people are in hiding. They're in mountains and caves and anywhere they can be to be protected. The Midianites aren't even letting them grow food. The implication here is that they're coming every year at harvest and taking all the food they can and destroying whatever they can't. So Israel is without supplies. They're laying waste to the land Israel is occupying and they're leaving Israel with nothing. That's a picture of where sin leaves us even to this day. As Tim shared in our last series, What's the Point? Christianity is not about rules at all. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. However, God has designed us with a particular way in which we are to live and a way that leads to human flourishing. And if we depart from our design, 
our end is despair. If we depart from our design, our end is despair. And so it's incredible though, in spite of that, in spite of how often we still do that, God provides a way out. He provides a way out through Jesus Christ, right? Through the cross, through his grace to be set free from sin and death. And then he empowers us with the Holy Spirit so we can actually live the lives that we were designed to live and experience a piece of what we were created to experience on this side of eternity. Let's go back to Judges, though. Picking up again, chapter 6, verse 6, says this. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. And so as we see in this cycle, the Israelites eventually realize what they've done, and God sends, uh, meets them with a prophet who reminds them of what God has done for him. He kind of says, hey, don't you remember what I've done for your ancestors and how I've been there every step of the way, and what's happening now is you're turning away from me. I'm still here for you. And now Gideon enters the picture after all this down in verse 11. It says, the angel of the Lord came. And he sat under the oak tree and was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite. So just as we saw in chapter two, that that was in kind of a, a situation where that was Jesus that came down. I believe that this is Jesus as well. So Jesus appears and he sits under a tree by a guy named Joash. And Joash is Gideon's father. And he's going to be kind of pivotal in this story as we move forward. Continuing in verse 11, his son, Joash's son, Gideon, was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. When I read that, it kind of seems like an oxymoron. I mean, we're introduced to this guy Gideon, and he's threshing wheat hidden in a wine press. Normally, if you're threshing wheat, you're kind of doing it out in the open, out in the fields. You have livestock animals helping you do this awful task, and yet he's doing it. He's so afraid that he's doing it kind of in this enclosed, hidden area so he won't get found. And yet, Jesus looks at him and calls him valiant warrior. Like valiant warrior, like I don't know about you, but when I read this, valiant warrior is not the description of Gideon I would choose. Like more like cowardly farmer is who we're reading about here now. He doesn't seem like a valiant warrior. However, I think valiant warrior is what God is calling Gideon up to be. And maybe even calling out of Gideon. It's the thing that God created him to be was a valiant warrior. And so in some sense, I think what God is doing is kind of holding a crown over Gideon's head for him to grow into this thing that he is to become because God has said, this is who you're going to be. Let's see how Gideon responded to that in verse 13. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And so Jesus responds, or Gideon responds, excuse me, to Jesus' claim that God is with him and that he is a valiant warrior by bringing up a doubt that I think has probably been plaguing him this entire period of oppression. Don't you care about us, God? I mean, you brought us out of Egypt and now you've just abandoned us. You're nowhere to be found. We're struggling here. Don't you see what's going on? Why are you letting this happen? See, Gideon is uncertain if God is who he actually says he is. 
And I think as we look back on the story of Gideon, he can kind of get a bad rap, but, but I can relate to him. I mean, during mine and Delaney's first year of marriage, we were in ministry and we were incredibly broke and just making no money, couldn't even make it paycheck to paycheck. It was a rough situation. We were both struggling with anxiety and depression. And I remember both of us asking those same questions. Like, God, where are you? We're trying to do the right things. We're trying to follow you. And it feels like you're nowhere to be found. Maybe you can relate to that. I mean, maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you feel that way right now. Gideon felt that same way. And back to Gideon, we, we know that as we talked, right, that oppression that Israel is experiencing is not because God has abandoned them, but rather it's the way in which God is trying to get through to them. Warren Wiersbe says this about kind of this particular situation. He says that chastening is the evidence of God's hatred for sin and his love for his people. We can't conceive of a holy God wanting anything less than his very best for his children. And the best he can give us is a holy character like that of Jesus Christ. Obedience to the Lord builds character, but sin destroys character. And God cannot sit idly by and watch his children destroy themselves. Chastening assures us that we are truly God's children, that our Father loves us, and that we can't get away with rebellion. Gideon's not able to see the current circumstances for what they really are. God is trying to communicate with Israel by the only way in which they will listen. It's a loving father reluctantly doing what he must in order to save his children from a much, much worse fate. And so because of these particular circumstances and because of Jesus' affirmation of being with him, Gideon could have and maybe even should have been certain Man, because of all this, I know God is with us. I know God has not abandoned me. I know God has not abandoned Israel, but he was faced with uncertainty. Let's see how Jesus responds to this doubt in verse 14. It says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family, but I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. So Jesus tells him, hey, go and deliver Israel from Midian. This is the thing I'm calling you to do. And, and Gideon responds again by, by kind of asking, like, hey, God, are you sure about this? Like, I know you're God and all, and I know you know everything, but, like, my family is super weak, can't even out-wrestle any of my brothers. I'm not the guy for the job. I won't be able to take down Midian. Do you really know what you're doing, God? But Gideon is missing out on what Jesus is saying. And I think that's because Gideon is allowing his own insecurity about what he thought of himself and what he thought of his family to kind of uh, cloud and overshadow who Jesus said he was, a valiant warrior. And, and even that, like Jesus is not telling him to go in the strength of his family or in the strength of himself, but the strength lies in the fact that Jesus is the one sending him, and as he promised him earlier, he will be with him no matter what. And so he can have security in the one sending him. He can have security because he knows the one that is sending him, and the one that is sending him is promising to be with him. These promises should give Gideon all the assurance he needs to be able to do what God is calling him to do. However, 
Because Gideon still wasn't convinced, Gideon asked Jesus for a sign. And Gideon brought him a full meal, which this was normal among Baal worshipers, the kind of worshipers of this pagan God, to bring a full meal uh, to this God to help appease him. And what Jesus did was he tapped it with a staff, and it went up in flames. And Gideon, at this moment, it kind of clicks. He realizes who he's speaking to, and he becomes concerned that he's going to die. And I think it's because he thinks back to Moses, right? When God meets Moses and, and God says, hey, if you saw my face, you would die. And so I think he's thinking back to that. And so Jesus reassures him, hey, you're not going to die. And then he gives him his first mission, kind of the game plan. Here's step one in this whole plan of taking over Midian, starting in verse 25. It says, on that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this mound and take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon's family, we learn, are Baal worshipers. They're worshiping this other God and God was asking him to tear down that altar that his father had built this is likely an altar that his father, his family, and his town would have sacrificed children on. And so while God is not asking him to fight the entire Midianite army right now, he's asking him to do something that I think would have been really difficult for Gideon to do. And so let's see what Gideon decides to do in this first mission. Verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord told him. That's a surprise. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. So Gideon, we do see he does follow through with what God asked him to do. However, the text is clear. Gideon is terrified. He has no confidence in, in, in Jesus and in this situation. And even after Jesus' promises, even after this sign, he was still afraid. And I mean, think about it. Right, he stole his dad's prized bulls. You know, and those bulls were likely gonna be sacrifices to Baal. And he destroyed the altar to one of their gods and, and also the Asherah pole, which my CSB study Bible uh, notes this. It says an Asherah pole was a stylized tree that represented the fertility goddess Asherah, Baal's consort. And so from a human perspective, right? I mean, Gideon had every right to be afraid. Like, I don't think any of us could sit here and be like, man, why are you afraid? Like, I, I get it as I'm reading this story. He, God was asking him to uproot the idols in his family and in his town and reclaim that area for the Lord. I mean, this was surely going to cause an uproar. And it did. We see the men of the town find out that Gideon was responsible for this. And, uh, and, and what happens next is they all try and kill him. All of the men of the town want to kill him because of what he did. I mean, I, I just think of like Gideon is probably feeling so vindicated right now. Like, see, this is why I was afraid, God. Like, you thought you would protect me, but now there's a whole town of my people. They hate me and they want to kill me. Like, what were you thinking? Why did I even ever listen? What's going on? But here's what happens next. It's crazy. Gideon's father, Joash, we mentioned earlier, he steps in and comes to his son's rescue. Verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? 
Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he, if Baal, is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel since Joash said, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. And so while Joash was Gideon's father, he was also a Baal worshiper. And objectively speaking, like he had the most to lose. He lost the most out of all the other people in this situation. It was his altar. They were his bulls. It was his Asherah pole. Like he lost a lot. And yet God used Joash to save Gideon's life. And perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps Joash even repented from his idolatrous ways and turned back to God. But at the very least, God clearly worked in his life to keep Gideon safe. In other words, God is making good on his promises. God is going to keep him safe. God is going to do a thing through Gideon. And and at this point, surely Gideon should have nothing to fear, should have no more doubt. I want to finish this part of the story where uh, Gideon finally is going to face the enemies of Israel, starting in verse 33. It says, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the, in the Je- Jezreel Valley. So Israel's oppressors, they're gathering together for kind of their yearly raid uh, to destroy all the food, do, do all that kind of stuff. And then in verse 34, it says, the spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. And he blew the trumpet, and the Abyssalites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, who also came to meet him. And so you'll notice all those groups of people, those would have been Israelites that are now rallying behind Gideon to fight back and to obey God. And as they're doing that, like Gideon knows this is the moment. This is what God was preparing him for. It was finally time to fight the Midianites. But as we learn in chapter seven, the Midianites way outnumber Israel. Even with all this help that he has, they're still way outnumbered. And so what do you think is gonna happen? Is Gideon finally going to trust in God's promises and the evidence that he's seen of God's faithfulness? Or will he be unable to see the forest for the trees? Let's find out in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you'll deliver Israel by me, as you said, I'll put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, well, I'll know that you'll deliver Israel by me, as you said. In other words, I'll know you really meant what you said before. And that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece, he wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon then said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. So he kind of flipped it. And that night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and the dew was all over the ground. In spite of everything that God had promised and how God had made good on all that promise, how he had followed up on that, Gideon still has what feels like, to me, a last-ditch effort to get out of what God had called him to. I sometimes struggle with anxiety, and this reads to me like someone having kind of a major anxiety attack right before a really big situation. And, and, And I think he's so anxious that he asked God to perform another sign. And then when God does it, he's like, hey, uh, flip it, uh, reverse uno, would it, like, you know, like we got to switch this and do it again because I know you can't do that. So he's trying to get out of this situation, asking him to do it again. And the craziest part is, is that God does it again. 
right? Despite Gideon's anxiety, God doesn't get angry with him. He doesn't strip him of the title valiant warrior. And he doesn't take away the promise that he'll be there for him and he'll be with him and he'll deliver him and Israel from the Midianites. And that evening, God gave Gideon and Israel a great victory over uh, the enemies of Israel. In other words, God kept his word. God kept his word as he always does. Gideon struggled mightily to stand firm on the promises of God. And so he was tossed around all over the place. He struggled mightily throughout this situation. It made his difficult and his uncertain circumstances that much more unbearable. He had solid ground to stand on in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of these scary things that God was offering to him and asking him to do, and yet he continually was doubting the only thing that was certain, that if God was trustworthy. And so all this kind of leads to our takeaway this morning. When we stand firmly on the promises of God, we can have stability in the midst of fear. When we stand firmly on the promises of God, we can have stability in the midst of fear. And, and really quick, what I don't want you to hear from this talk is that uh, kind of what is commonly known as kind of name it, claim it theology or the, the prosperity gospel. Right, this, this idea is that like if you cling to God's promises or if you pray anything kind of in faith that God is going to do whatever the thing is that you ask or, or certain promises that maybe aren't real promises to us, we can kind of hold and cling on to and kind of use them as like magic words to make God do whatever it is that we want him to do. And that, that's not the case. God's promises are so much more than that. And God's promises are so much better than that. There are absolute truths that we can hold on to and have certainty in when everything else is uncertain. And when we cling to God's promises, what it does is it provides a stability in the midst of the worst situations because we can't guarantee the outcome. There are going to be situations where it doesn't go the way we want where we pray for something and, and God answers with the no or does not answer or a situation turns out for the worse. So my encouragement to you would be to cling tightly to God's promises for you because God and his word can be the only thing that keep you grounded if you let it. This week as I was preparing, I asked some of our staff if they would share with me some of their kind of favorite promises of God that they hold on to in times of uncertainty, anxiety, fear, and insecurity. Uh, and here are a couple of the ones that they shared I'd like to share with you. John 3.16 for God loved the world this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's weird to think about it, but that's a promise. That if you place your faith in Jesus, you have life and life to the full, life abundant, starting now forevermore. Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God promises to be with us and near with us when things are difficult and things are hard. He promises to be with you. He doesn't necessarily promise to change the circumstance the way you want it, but he'll be with you through whatever it is you're going through. Psalm 27.1, it's kind of in the same vein. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? God promises to be a stronghold, to be your light in the darkness, to be your savior in times of rescue. Switching things up a little bit, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. 
He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. When you're tempted to sin and to turn from God, he promises to always provide an escape route so that you don't choose to turn away from him, so you don't choose death and despair, but you can choose life instead. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible promise. If you are in Christ, if you place your faith in him, God loves you as a daughter, as a son, and there's nothing in this world, there's nothing in heaven, and there's nothing in hell that can separate you from that love of God. This was mine, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're gonna have a whole lot of difficult things come our way in this life. Some of those things are gonna work out the way we want them to, a lot of them are not. But the truth is, is that you can hold on to the hope that, that this affliction, whatever it is you're going through, is light and momentary compared to what God is preparing for you for eternity. And so you can have hope in the midst of darkness now because of what you know is coming for you then. So which one or two of these promises most resonates with you, most kind of hits you as I was reading through them? Maybe you have a different one that you already hold on to. I would encourage you to memorize uh, one or multiple or all of these promises to hide them in your heart because the promises of God provide a stability in the midst of fear. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for just the truth, the reality that your promises are good that you keep your word, that you are faithful, that you are unchanging, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so God, I ask that as we do face the darkness and the brokenness uh, and the difficulty that this world and this life brings, that you help us to turn to you in the midst of it, that you help us to cling and stand firmly to your promises so that we might be able to have some certainty so that we might be able to move forward with hope rather than spiral downward like Israel did before us. We thank you and we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.